0: Have you ever envisioned your life to be one way, and then quickly realized that your expectations did not fully meet your reality? Dr. Mark David Monk realized this once he started practicing as an emergency medicine physician. Inspired by his college days as an EMT, he just wanted to help patients on their own terms. But unfortunately, he quickly discovered the aggravating feeling known as Rack Rage, Never ending lines of patients, which led to never fully spending enough time with each one, which then led to having to cut corners to simply get through the day. This was certainly not what he envisioned his life to be as an emergency medicine physician. And because of this disappointment, he chose to look outside the box, elsewhere, outside the country. He thought, how could I treat a whole patient during an emergency situation? Without having to experience all that comes with the Western medical system? The answer was in Flying Doctors of East Africa, a nonprofit that provides air evacuation in medical emergencies across East Africa and beyond. In this episode, we dig into Mark's experiences as a flying doctor in East Africa, why he became an emergency medicine physician to begin with the moral dilemmas he faced while working in the western system, the dilemmas he also faced in Africa, what he learned, and what he hopes to change in the western system today. Ultimately, his experiences motivated him to write an impactful book called Urgent Calls from Distant Places, an emergency doctor's notes about life and death on the frontiers of East Africa. Before we dive in, Here's a little bit more about Dr. Monk. Dr. Mark David Monk is a Canadian-American who has emerged as a prominent figure in healthcare to drive change in emergency medicine and healthcare management across the U.S. and internationally. His career began as an emergency medicine professor and as the medical director of Qatar's National Ambulance Service, Advancing to executive roles, he served as chief medical officer for elite physician groups and as the regional president for an international division of a leading American healthcare system. Raised in Switzerland and Canada, Dr. Monk's educational path led him to earn a bachelor's in philosophy and religion from Colgate University. He then attained an MPH in international health from Boston University. His medical training was completed at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, followed by an emergency medicine residency and an international health fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh. He also holds a diploma in tropical medicine from Peru's Gorgas program and a master's in healthcare management from Harvard University. Dr. Monk lives outside Boston with his wife and two children. My name is Ethel Baman and this... Is the global health pursuit? Hey, Doctor Monk, how are you?
1: Piddle, thank you for having me. Great,
0: of course. Hey, happy Valentine's Day!
1: Happy Valentine's Day! It is the fourteenth today.
0: Yes, um, I just realized that, and. I just wanted to say happy Valentine's Day.
1: Happy Valentine's Day.
0: (laughs) I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. You had sent me your book, Urgent Calls from Distant Places. I have it with me. And I think, you know, we're going to be talking about a lot of the experiences that you've had in East Africa. And I, I just want to kind of dive in. And the first thing, really, I want to talk about is your your beginnings. You know, where did you where did you grow up? For anybody who hasn't read the book yet, make sure to get it. I will have the link in the description. But I want to ask you, where did you grow up? What was your family life like? What were your dreams? You know, when you were younger.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I. I grew up in uh, Canada. I was a Canadian kid, uh, one of uh, five five children with divorced parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, we had I had an uncle who was a physician, but none of my parents were in medicine. Not not scientifically focused at all, either mm-hmm. of them. What I what I did find was that I was a kid who was eminently curious about people in the world. That's what really propelled me through my youth. And as I started to get to university, I realized that I was was very interested in people's stories and was very interested in investigating them. And I thought I was going to be a journalist. Mm. I mean, so if you would have told me at 18 that I was going to be a doctor, I would have laughed at you because I was sure I was going to be a journalist. And so I studied the humanities in university. And as I say in the book, what ended up happening, and it was serendipitous, was that I fell into the volunteer ambulance service in the small town in upstate New York where I was going to university. And it was one of these things that just grew into a steady passion over the years. And what I realized by the time I became a senior and I really had to commit to journalism school was that, yes, I continued to be very, very interested in people and their stories. But rather than simply reporting on them, I was very interested in becoming involved and actually on the stage, right? Mm. Engaging with people, helping them improve their lives, being part of the narrative as opposed to simply reporting it. And so... That's really how I pivoted into medicine. I realized that there was an opportunity to really make a difference for people.
0: You say that you fell into the world of EMT. Like, how does that? Ha- how does one fall into <laughs> into that field?
1: It's, you know, it, it's always sometimes uh, these are interesting questions. I mean, I think somebody once told me that I think the path picks you uh, ultimately mm-hmm. if, you, as long as you leave yourself open to exploring new things and. As I was entering university, the college was sending around a booklet of all of the various things that you could do, the various activities, right, the extracurricular activities. And one of the things that was listed was a membership in the local ambulance service. And for some reason, it just grabbed me. I had no experience in emergency services, but there's something about it that really interested me. Listen, I, th- I think a lot of people are into sort of lights and sirens and who knows, right? The excitement <laughs> of it. Yeah. So I ended up enrolling in community college at night. I took um, EMT courses, went on to do advanced EMT courses. And really for my four years, I I spent most of my time, honestly, at the ambulance barn training and being available for calls and being incredibly immersed in in these emergency services. And so that's how it happened for me.
0: In the book, you talk about saving a life at age 20, Mm -hmm. which is just incredible. You talk about how this really propelled or even like motivated you into the world of medicine. I know you also mentioned in the book that you studied religion and philosophy, you know, you're Mm. like a humanities guy through and through. So Mm -hmm. doing this and then saving somebody's life at age 20, how did it feel to you to completely almost like upend your life in that moment?
1: So that was that was a really insightful question. I think what I found was what motivated me to study the humanities was really to gain an understanding of what makes people tick, what's important to them, how they form morals, how they structure their lives, what's what's important to them. And I remember working on the ambulance service and that particular particular night, we were called really to the home of somebody, uh, elderly person on the outskirts of town, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a cardiac arrest. And I I, I remember two things about that case, uh, which which struck me as really profound. I mean, the first, the first was that students, we didn't typically have much opportunity to interact with people who lived in the community. It was just, as many universities are, it was a cloistered environment. And so the ambulance and the fire service I was with, it was really an opportunity, I think, to work with people from the community, but also to serve people from the community. And it really gave you an exposure to a life that you otherwise wouldn't have exposure to. I mean these were these were rural people. I grew up in a big city. These were typically people who were uh, less economically situated. It was an exposure to them and to their lives. So for me, it was it was really a broadening of the world, and it felt like such a rich opportunity to engage with patients on their terms because mm-hmm. they invited you into their house, they were sick, you went in and served on their schedule. Mm-hmm. So there was a really there was a richness to that experience that I very much valued.
0: That just reminds me of a quote that you had mentioned in the book. You write the delivery of emergency medicine is set according to each patient's needs. It's an intimate and intense specialty requiring an enormous degree of sensitivity to be good at it, to be really tuned in to the patient and his program. And not make mistakes requires a certain humility, a willingness to meet patients on their own terms, and even a vulnerability on the part of the doctor. So I think that you just spoke to that.
1: There was, we talk a lot in medicine about patient centricity, right? That's, be, that's become a real catchphrase. This is patient-centric medicine. Everything is about patient centricity. The truth of the matter is, if you've been a patient recently, The system really isn't particularly patient centric, right? Mm -hmm. It's you you go to seek healthcare, you get to this typically a large campus of a hospital. The parking is awful, (laughs) right? Uh, uh, You've got to pay a lot of money for it. You get in; these are inconvenient times for appointments because people typically work; they can't get time off of work. Mm -hmm. the The whole thing is really structured at the convenience of the doctors, to be perfectly honest with you. You go to their office, you stay in their environment, you go on their terms, you go on their time. The system the system is actually built around clinicians. It's not built around patients at all. The exception to this, in my mind, has always been emergency medicine and particularly EMS, emergency medical services, because patients show up when they need service, and the ER is open 24 hours a day, and people come in, and care is delivered on their own terms. theres There has always been patient-centricity to emergency medicine. It is unfortunately not the best place for certain patients to get care because there's something about a relationship in longitudinal care, particularly for patients with chronic disease that's much more important than the access of the emergency department mm-hmm. but but it is undeniably patient-centric. right.
0: So you going into emergency medicine, like that specialty was that set in your mind in the very like when you decided you wanted to go to medical school, was emergency medicine like the the main goal for you because of your experiences as an EMT? I,
1: I knew it. Uh, mm. I knew that's what I wanted to do. And when I went to medical school, it was four years and there was no question in my mind that I would seek emergency medicine residency at the end of it.
0: Mm. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people don't have that clarity so early on mm-hmm. in life. And it's like so amazing that you did. So your thoughts, in terms of when you knew that you wanted to do emergency medicine, like what did you envision your life to be like? You know, what did you envision being an emergency phys- physician to be like on a day-to-day basis?
1: I, I really thought that it would be a lot like my work as an EMT, that I okay. would be dealing with, with sick patients or not so sick patients um, as they came in. What I found was that the work was actually not quite what I had expected. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out that a lot of emergency medicine is really trying to patch a broken system. You're patching the holes in the system that don't work. And so y- you may have a handful of very sick patients who come in every day. You may have a handful of not so sick patients, but, but you still can do something for them. What, you, what I found was that you end up with a lot of patients who've got problems that you can't fix. And so these are patients who've got complex chronic disease issues, for example. You can stabilize somebody with diabetes in an ER, but you can't really manage their long-term diabetes. It's not the place for it. You don't have the relationship. You can't handle socioeconomic complications. Uh, You can't handle behavioral health concerns. What you really can't handle are patients who really should be elsewhere in the system, but don't have insurance, have no place to go, and they end up in the ER. So it becomes, on some level, quite frustrating because you're not equipped to handle the type of patients who are coming in, it's it's this kind of constant barrage of stuff that you can't fix, and you're putting constantly holes in the dike, trying to keep it from breaking. I mean, the other issue clearly that we were dealing with was overcrowding. ERs then, as they are today, are just inundated with patients, and it's a consequence of a broken healthcare system. Whether you don't have insurance, whether you don't have a doctor, whether you're new in town, uh, whether you've got behavioral health issues that prevent you from getting service. Whether you have a nine to five job and your boss right. doesn't let you get care mm-hmm. and so and so we became kind of the grab bag, the catch all uh, for anybody who needed care, and on some level, it's exactly the reason people get into emergency medicine is because they value providing that level of service that that degree of access, but it becomes a lot
0: the term grab bag, yeah, it resonates a lot, mm-hmm. and i and I feel like there were so many quotes in this book, Mark, that I <laughs> I need to read this one, too, because it just represents what you said. So you say that the emergency, the emergency room had become a fallback, a, a place of both first and last resort, a diner with an unlimited menu serving all things to all customers were open to all and our waiting room never emptied. Comparing an emergency room to a diner with an unlimited menu is just such, and I feel like that was just an amazing analogy that you made. Wow! Thank you. <laughs> so, what went what, what what went wrong? Because you said that it wasn't really what you expected. So, what had happened?
1: Yeah. It was one of these one of these situations in retrospect that I'm not sure I would have anticipated. But w- what ended up happening in at this point in the story, I was really only a couple months out of training. I had, I had gone, finished medical school, had gone back and done a residency, had gone back and done fellowship in emergency medicine. And I was a newly minted attending physician at a university medical center. And what I started to find was that I was dreading my shifts. Mm-hmm. And this is from somebody who had spent years and years taking care of patients in an ambulance and loved what I was doing. I was suddenly dreading, dreading my shifts. I couldn't figure out why. I realize in retrospect that the real problem was the fact that the system was so stacked against the clinician. It still is today. But but ultimately, there has really been scarce investment in emergency medicine. I mean, health systems are designed to make money. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make money in places like cardiac centers, oncology centers, advanced imaging, procedural right. specialties. Mm-hmm. They don't honestly make money in emergency medicine. For most places, it's a loss leader. It's a service that they have to offer. And so most places kind of skimp, like the most unattractive parts of the hospital typically are where the ER is located. It's dark. It's inundated with patients. And there was never really an incentive in in many ERs for the administrators to staff appropriately because typically the sickest patients get seen, the least sick patients wait a long time, and many of them just walk out. And it works for the administrators. And so what we started to find when I was working was that we were really... The clinicians and the nurses, the doctors, the techs, they they all showed up to work with enthusiasm and also with an incredible work ethic and per sense of professionalism. But ultimately, I think we started to feel that the system was taking advantage because it relied on the fact that we were professionals and would show up and continue to see patients. And what we started to find was in order to see the number of patients that you needed to see, we called it rack rage. Mm-hmm. Racks, I was they, going they to up,
0: say that. <laughs> rack rage.
1: They, they, you know, we called it rack rage because you lined up chart after chart and they, those were patients waiting to be seen. And inevitably, no matter how hard you worked, the racks never got smaller. The patients kept coming in and coming in and coming in. And you had to cut corners, right? And you couldn't... You couldn't deliver the type of service you really wanted to deliver, the type of care you wanted to deliver, because there were 50 other patients and some of them were super sick and Mm -hmm. like you just had to keep things moving and moving. And I I realized in retrospect that I was experiencing what we would call now as moral injury, but I don't think that we had a term for it at the time. And so that's really, I think, the precursor to my time in Africa. It was this sense of sort of, of, of moral violation.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about what moral injury is? Mm. Like, how can it manifest?
1: Yeah, so it's a term that actually came, it's, it's a psychiatric term that's come from the war literature. It, it typically applied to soldiers who were compelled to do things that they felt Wouldn't morally uncomfortable do. mm-hmm. doing, right? It's shooting somebody, as an example. I right. mean, most of us, most of us, I think we really struggle to shoot somebody, but in a situation of war where you're 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 forced to do that as as part of your your oath to your country, and that's I think the really for many people the cause of this PTSD. It's it was this having been forced into doing things that they weren't comfortable doing morally, but had to justify for pragmatic reasons. And the term has has popped up in the medical literature over the past ten years, and it really applies to doctors who are forced. To cut corners, uh, to see too many patients.
0: This term, to deliver. productivity.
1: Productivity is exactly right. Yeah, that's uh, you know forced to see certain number of RVUs. It's forced to uh, administer a certain number of tests because that's the expectation. I mean, and, and this really is not what doctors trained to do. Hmm. And so it 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 creates this internal conflict, right, between your obligations to your organization, your obligations professionally your obligations to your patient, your obligations to yourself. There's a discordance.
0: It's just that productivity term. I just have to tell the story where my, one of my best friends is a physical therapist
1: Hmm.
0: and she works in a nursing home and she no longer works there, but she would always tell me that, you know, there, we had to be, This level of productive to actually get through the number of patients every day. And she was telling me that, you know, I'd have 10, 15 minutes with the patients that not even. Mm -hmm. What, what, why am I doing this? This is not helping, you know? Yeah. And. That just remind me of that story.
1: So the system, I've I've come to terms with the fact that the, the American system is broken primarily because of the way that we're paid or that we pay for service in the U.S. Mm. And so here we use a system called fee for service. It's the dominant way of paying for service. But what it basically means is that you as a clinician, you as a hospital, bill for each procedure, each widget, each service that you deliver. Uh, and thus, the more widgets or services that you can deliver, the better you do. Right. Most doctors are held to this concept of generating RVUs, relative value units. It's a way of measuring how much service you deliver. And many doctor salaries are actually tied to how many RVUs they generate. So if you've ever wondered why your visits are as short as they are, it's because seeing your primary care doctor, for example, if they can squeeze more visits into the day, they get to build the same number of services or visits delivered. But each visit gets shorter and shorter, and less and less meaningful. Right. And it's it's a really perverse way to pay for service. I think it's the core dysfunction in American healthcare. And there are much better ways to pay for service, but they're having a hard time making inroads. They're they're called value based care models, and I I've been passionate about them for the past decade. But they're, they're slow to make inroads, and it's because this fee for service is just so entrenched in how we do things.
0: Hmm. And I feel like we could have a whole separate conversation. Around that itself. So now, going through this moral injury and feeling as if you weren't really making a real difference, you decided to look outside of the US and kind of do something that was just some do something that people normally wouldn't do, right? Hmm. And so you enrolled as a emergency medical doctor in the Flying Doctors of East Africa. And you write in your book, quote, there there were three types of people who left to work far from home. There were those people who were running from something, those who were looking for adventure, and those who were in it for the money. So what made you really look for something as different as this.
1: Yeah. I love that quote that came from a colleague uh, who I work with in the Middle East. And we were commenting, if you spend time as an expatriate in the Middle East, you will come across these people who left the West and just never went back. Mm. Like they've, they've been there for 20 years. And in fact, they've become so so used to the place that they really struggle to go back typically to the UK or North America when they're finished it's an interesting phenomenon my friend was saying there's really three reasons why they're there you you mentioned them yeah in my case uh, it certainly wasn't about the money i mean i wasn't i wasn't being paid by the east african flying doctor service for being there and i'm not sure i was running from something I, I i suspect in my case it was more about the sense of adventure but but truthfully the reason i was in africa was that i wanted to create a new environment for me almost a sacred space to be able to treat patients one at a time over a longer period of time to get to know them outside of my comfort zone as a way of really truly listening to myself, of helping work through what it was I truly wanted to do with this career that I had spent so many years developing and nurturing. And so for me, it was this opportunity to get away someplace completely different and to just spend spend some time listening to myself.
0: Can you talk about maybe like a story or two that that really just impacted you when you first got there?
1: Well, there's so many. So the, the book itself, I'll give you a little bit of background here. So the, the the book itself is a story of 22 missions that we took in my my two tours mm-hmm. with the AMREF, uh, East African Flying Doctor Service, to 11 different countries in Africa. Uh, each one is a different mission, a different emergency that we had. The, the Flying Doctor is just going back for your, your listeners, if they haven't read the book, and I suspect, you know, many haven't, the Flying Doctors was an organization that was founded in 1953 by three physicians, uh, reconstructive surgeons, who set up shop in Africa and flew little Cessnas into the bush, into community hospitals, setting up clinics in the middle of nowhere, little Cessnas, and they took care of patients and did surgeries and based themselves out of Nairobi, kind of doing this this outreach. Over time, it evolved into this uh, world-class ambulance service. It's really today recognized as one of the the world's best. They win awards all the time. Very much a modern, modern medicine using all different types of aircraft, primarily as a medevac service. So this is the service that can get into pretty much any airstrip. In Africa, they know them all, and they can get into really thorny political places and collect patients and bring them back to Nairobi. And so... So that's you know that was that was the background of of what I was signing up to do. I had spent time doing medevac obviously EMS and then in my residency had done a lot of helicopter medevac in the US. This was an opportunity to go into a different place bringing those skills but also exposing myself to people who were completely unlike me. We didn't speak right. the same language, different all kinds of different emergencies. I mean I I don't know which story to even begin to tell you. We've got 22 I think some really weird stories in retrospect. I'd love to know which ones you we were most impressed by
0: there was a story about a girl who ingested uh um, yes yeah and that was really interesting for me cuz you really painted a, a picture of what the parents were going through mm mm-hmm.
1: this this was a very this was a very sad story we we were called out for the young woman who had taken uh, an overdose and Unfortunately, the medication that she took was an anti-tuberculosis medication called isoniazid. And as I say in the book, it turns out that there are like a bunch of different medicines that you can take that won't do much to you. As I say, if you take a lot of stool softeners, you'll have a lot of soft stool. (laughs) 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 That's kind of it. There are a handful of medicines out there that when you talk to emergency doctors and say a patient took this medicine, they will shiver because they are so toxic and so awful. And I've seen patients die right in front of my eyes from overdosing on just the wrong medicines, and it wasn't much. So there are times when there are suicidal teenagers who try to make a suicidal gesture and they they ingest a handful of pills, almost as a statement or, or a call out for help. But it turns out, unfortunately, the medicines they took are really so toxic at high doses that they die right in front of you. And this medication that this young woman took was one of those medications. It's a strange one because it's been around really for a long time. We don't see it in the West anymore. And it was one of those medicines that every medical student has learned because it, it just so turns out. The way that it works creates this metabolic derangement that we all learn in medical school. It's a classic. It, it there's an, an acronym called Mud Piles, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which lists the various causes for uh, uh, for an acidosis, metabolic acidosis, and we learn them all, despite the fact some of the medicines on the list we don't see anymore. And so, as I say in the book, I don't want to ruin the punchline for what happened to the little girl. She was she was fine actually in the end. But as I say in the book, it was one of these interesting tidbits of knowledge that had been passed from generation of doctor to generation of doctor to generation of doctor, including me, it was one of these factoids that you would have in the West imagined was completely useless, but it turned out to be the key to the whole thing.
0: Yeah, wow. I think, like you said, there's numerous stories in the book that just, you know, just kind of floored me. And I really want to ask you, like, after doing so many of these missions, do you think that you've you've found what you were looking for when you signed up to to do this
1: i I think so um i quote I quote Joseph Campbell a lot in the book, and I think for younger listeners, you may not know who Joseph Campbell is because he was a he was a bigger deal probably twenty years ago, but he was a an American theologian thinker. Who wrote a lot about this concept of the hero's journey and what he, what that means basically is this idea that there's, there's a problem at home. A young person, typically young person is identified to, to go out into the world to train and to deal with hardships and uncertainties and to learn a lot about the experience and to kind of come back as a transformed person and i very much found that my experience in africa was was one version of that hero's journey mm. it was for me an opportunity to go out into places that were completely unfamiliar to me i didn't know the people i didn't know the cultures i didn't know the language we shared no common no no common religion it was all new to me but what i did find in those relationships and experiences was that there was almost a profound doctor-patient relationship in, mm-hmm. in the best context of the word that was formed. And to me, that ability to connect with people, there's one story of a, of a young boy who was hit by a car later in the book, and we fly way into northern Kenya uh, to, to pick up this family. The parents had only a few times in their life been in a car. The child had never been in a car, um, and it, certainly not none of them had ever been in an aircraft mm-hmm. before. But as we went up to pick up this family... We realized that none of them spoke not only English but they didn't speak Swahili either, which was the common language in Kenya. They were a member of a, of a much smaller uh, group that that spoke regional dialects none of us none of us could converse with them but there was this very touching moment uh, in in that story where we take a look at this boy who's clearly severely injured after being hit by the car, and the mother. Looks at me, recognizes I'm a doctor who with with whom she shares no common no commonalities, and she hands the boy over to me. And I really loved that story because to me it it reiterated in my mind the real reason I had become a doctor, which was precisely to provide this type of care to people. That there was something fundamental about the doctor-patient relationship that had transcended the cultural barriers and 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 cultural understandings. And there was something very pure about that relationship. And it. I think my takeaway from that experience was really that it's not that Africa was a less complex place than the West. It's not like it didn't have problems. It, of course, it had problems. It had different problems. But there was something about spending time away from home, which reemphasized to me the importance of that healing relationship.
0: You know, throughout the book, you do. And I'm not sure if you. You ask a lot of questions to yourself in terms of Am I really making a difference? Is this really enough? Is, you know, you, you write, Was there value in saving one life when we left dozens of equally sick, but less fortunate, and people behind? Was it better to dispense with air rescues and use the money to by cheap vaccines for hundreds or thousands of kids which moral framework would we use to justify our choices and who would make those decisions and i think for a lot of people you know in the states like how do you make the greatest impact you know and i think throughout the book you You just reiterate that over and over again. Like, I come and I save this one child, and then I drop them off in another hospital that might be a little bit more well-equipped. But am I doing, is this the right thing to do?
1: So I was, in retrospect, it turned out that philosophy was a pretty useful precursor to medicine. (laughs) Because moral questions are inherently philosophic questions. And as you said, how do you do the most good? Mm-hmm. Is really if if that's kind of how you measure what you're doing in the world, or how how you measure up, is doing the most good, what you're trying to accomplish. And if that's true, what is the most good? And so the example I use here is, and there's different philosophies about how to ration healthcare. Of course, I mean it's these are these are philosophies that that one isn't necessarily correct. Some people might say you're flying in an aircraft that's millions of dollars. Uh, In the back, you have hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment. Mm -hmm. You're landing in places that are desperately poor, Mm -hmm. hospitals that are desperately poor. As you're walking through the halls to collect your one patient, you're passing dozens, hundreds of patients who $10 might go a long way to fixing them, but you're prepared to spend thousands of dollars transporting this one patient back to Nairobi. And I think that if you were to put this in front of a committee someplace, say, you know, United Nations or somebody making healthcare spending decisions, they would say, you know, if we are trying to accomplish the maximum good for that amount of money, then taking care of one patient for tens of thousands of dollars isn't how we should do it. We should divvy it up and save lots of lives for smaller sums of money. The problem with that argument, of course, is it depends who you're talking to. And so I often quote this fellow, Lauren Isley, who was an American anthropologist and writer, and he wrote the famous story, the, the 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 Starfish Thrower. And The Starfish Thrower, you may have seen a version of this because it's become a bit of a cliche. It's a bit a bit kitschy. But there's some truth to the story. The Starfish Thrower, uh, Isley recounts in his short story, there's a situation where he's on the beach and the tide has gone out. And it has left this huge amount of sea life on the beach dying as the sun comes down. And he sees this fellow walking along the beach, and every time he sees a starfish, the fellow picks up the starfish and throws it into the water. And he's asked, why are you wasting time on single starfish? Can't you see there's a veritable holocaust of sea sea life that's dying on the beach? Why are you doing one starfish at a time? Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. And the guy looks at him and says, for that starfish, it did matter. And so I started to realize that these are not abstract theoretical discussions about resource allocation. That when I was working as a doctor in Africa, and people were desperately sick, to them, having an air ambulance arrive with a highly qualified doctor and equipment that was needed to save a life, for them, it was the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And they will go to their graves remembering the day that a volunteer doctor showed up with an aircraft and medical equipment and saved their life. And this story of 22 missions, there are 22 examples of lives that were saved. There were many more over the time I was there. And of course... AMREF's been doing this since 1953. So if you want to take a look at the book of successes that AMREF has generated, me, independent of me, I mean, right. it's, it's been tens of thousands of lives, hundreds of thousands of lives who have been saved. So I think the warning I'm trying to convey in the book is it's easy to fall into abstractions. And this is the challenge of public health sometimes. It's easy to fall into abstractions and to neglect the fact that in the doctor-patient relationship, it's a one-to-one relationship. Mm. And that creates inherent tensions, of course, later in the book. But this is the tension between being a clinician and being a public health worker.
0: It's like almost a question of, do you serve this one patient or are you just not serving anyone at all?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, yes. I mean, practically speaking, I think the question I had for people is if we were to get rid of this spectacular high-functioning air ambulance, mm-hmm. would that truly free up money for other things? I, I think the bureaucracy was wouldn't you know, doesn't necessarily mean that because you free up. Money in one area it's actually going to work effectively in programs in another that's an open question in Africa because it 's not really always a question of money it 's also a question of infrastructure and organization and those sorts of things. There was a very interesting story in the book which you maybe came across of of the young man who had started bleeding uh, from his virus mm-hmm. and uh, for listeners who haven't read the book this the story basically is that we were called to Ethiopia to pick up a young man, a European who had been sick in the local hospital for a number of days. And when they showed up on the airstrip, we had all of his paperwork. And I realized that nothing was working on this guy. His liver was yeah. broken. His kidney was broken. His lungs were broken. I mean, he was just, just a, a train wreck of a patient. And he had started hemorrhaging from his eyes, from his mouth. He was bleeding everywhere. He had no platelets left anymore to clot blood. And so... We're sitting on the runway with this fellow. We're about to fly him back to Nairobi. And it dawns on me that this fellow could very easily have an infectious hemorrhagic virus mm-hmm. like Ebola. And so here we had a real issue.
0: What, what was that moment like? Because like, oh, gosh. Because I did it, I, when I was reading that part, I was like, oh, my gosh, this, this could be like a disaster. You know, this
1: could be. A, so uh, you're, you've got two two things to consider. Number one is you're at extreme risk yourself. Right. I, mean, I wouldn't be the first doctor who was killed by his patients. There's another example, actually, in the book right. mm-hmm. of, of a young doctor at at St. At Mary's Hospital who was, they had an Ebola outbreak. He got splashed in the eyes and he was dead. Right. Mm-hmm. So these are some of the world's most deadly viruses. Yeah. And so it's it struck me, of course, you worry about yourself and your crew and the nurse. The real public health concern in this case was that we could potentially take a patient with a highly infectious virus and fly him to Nairobi and infects hundreds of people in Nairobi, cause an outbreak in one of the most populous cities in Africa. It's not an abstract concern It had happened previous, where there was a, a, down in South Africa, a virus that had infected a patient and, and, and she had been brought to the city and had infected the nurses and infected the paramedics and killed a bunch of people with this hemorrhagic virus. So here was an example of this abstract public health concern, not abstract, real public health concern. Right. That had to be weighed against the very real doctor-patient relationship I had established with the fellow in front of me. And the problem is in medicine, we take a Hippocratic Oath, but there's nothing in the Hippocratic Oath that tells you to abandon your patient in the name of this theoretical risk to a broader population of people who weren't your patients. Mm -hmm. And so I have an MPH, and I, of course, have studied medicine. And I sometimes think this is one of the conflicts between public health and medicine, that you that you're constantly trying to balance and and so to abandon to abandon my patient would be awful to infect the city of nairobi would be awful right how do you make those decisions
0: and who has answers for that you know it's you could debate that for as long as you want
1: (laughs) yeah i mean we made the best decision we could which turned out to be the correct one right fortunately
0: I mean, you're still here, so.
1: (laughs) I'm still here. Yeah. Thank you for
0: asking. (laughs) Good. So, after serving with flying doctors and coming back to the States, I want to ask you, like, what was your mindset like? You know, uh, there's an episode that I talk about on the podcast around navigating, like, a reverse culture shock, Mm. you know, and after. Spending so much time in a low-resource setting um, or a country that is just drastically different from the U.S. or Canada or anything, that any country that's high income, how did you readjust?
1: I wasn't gone for long enough, honestly, to feel the culture shock. I think I would have needed to have been away for longer. Mm -hmm. Um, But what Africa did do for me was that it helped me clear my mind and really start to prioritize what was next. Mm And I came to the understanding that if I were to spend the rest of my career as a frontline clinician in the emergency room, the system would change. It's very it's very hard when you're in that situation trying to take care of patients to actually affect change in the system. And so it struck me that there were two ways to try to make change. Uh, the first is to work within a system. The second is to be an outsider and to create disruptive models or different ways of doing things that could inform how it should be done going forward. And I decided to pursue the latter. I realized that I had an opportunity to to work with some really interesting, smart people who were developing different ways of delivering healthcare. And it was an opportunity to work with them and come up with models that worked better. And so paradoxically, spending time in Africa with one-to-one patient relationships ended up in America, pushing me away from patients to a certain extent is I ended up focusing much more on the administrative and, and organizational side of medicine. But it was, for me, very clarifying to spend that time.
0: Were there any, are there any examples of anything that you've like really implemented that you've seen some changes come from?
1: Yeah. So I spent really the past 10 years of my career working in this, we talked about this a little bit before, this, this value-based healthcare space. Mm-hmm. There have been organizations in the U.S. going back to the 70s that paid for healthcare differently and as a consequence generated far better outcomes. As an example, primary care is paid in most places by fee for service. And we discussed some of the implications of that, which are six-minute visits and really rushed clinicians trying to document as much as they can so that they can bill for a higher level of acuity. And ultimately, it creates the situation where there's an impetus to generate visit after visit after visit. But of course, what patients want is actually wellness and health. And really what people expect from a primary care doctor is that they're doing all of the preventive services and screening services and managing your chronic disease in an attempt to avoid the stroke or the heart attack or all of the bad things that accrue from neglecting that that part of your wellness. And there are ways to incentivize that. One of them is, is just a different way of paying for healthcare. So you get people off of the treadmill you pay them differently, you incentivize outcomes that create alignment between the payer and the patient and the care provider. And they're just much, they're much smarter. One of the organizations I was most happy to work with over the years was was a company called Iora Health that was founded by a mentor and an extraordinary doctor called Rishika Fernandepule, who was a primary care doctor working in Massachusetts, who came up with that a model of much better primary care. He's he's been bit written about extensively. And Rashika ended up over the years building up this extraordinary company I was privileged to work with him as his chief medical officer, but this this company that ended up delivering just superb superb primary care to frail seniors. Mm. And the way they did that was they subscribed to a different way of paying for healthcare called Medicare Advantage. It provided more money for primary care, more money for wellness and prevention. And as a consequence, you had these terrific centers that we developed where seniors could come in and get really unlimited time with the doctor and with their health coach and with the team caring for them. And the outcomes were dramatic. People were much healthier. The total cost of healthcare went down a lot because we were able to cut things off at the pass. And it was just a spectacular model. And so that was one of the examples of of the things we built when you had people like Rashika thinking differently about how to do it. Mm.
0: And that's, I think, the key to really think differently out of the box in terms of how to deliver healthcare like this. Mm-hmm. So, after writing your book, or through writing your book, what were your motivations in terms of sharing this book with other f- physicians, future physicians? What did you want them to learn?
1: such a thoughtful question because one of the questions that comes up sometimes is well, you know you waited 10 years to publish this book i i waited 10 years cuz i had the notes sitting on my hard drive and <laughs> i was meaning to do something with them and I, I didn't for a long time i i kept very detailed notes when i was in africa and each uh mission Typically, it was a blog posting. I kept a small blog for friends and family. And so I kept a lot of the details of the cases and great notes. And it was sitting on my hard drive. And I and I always knew it was an interesting story, that just in themselves, the cases were sort of interesting. And I could maybe turn them into some short stories. Or, And as time went on, I started to realize as I grew older that for me, this time spent in Africa was really an opportunity to clear my head and to think differently about healthcare. And it was a really clear pivot point for me. And as Steve Jobs said in his famous commencement speech, life really isn't understood looking forward. It's best understood looking backwards, and you can connect the dots in retrospect. Mm. And in retrospect, Africa was one of those dots that very much was an inflection point where I made the decision to go back and get business training and management training and, and learn how to operationalize healthcare in a way that was ethical. And Africa was that inflection point for me. So the the book, I I think, has been really well received by doctors in particular. A lot of non-doctors have read it and liked it, but the doctors really seem to identify with the book and have, have, have had a lot of favorable comments about it. And as I say, it's not necessarily that my journey is their journey, but that this was just one example of taking time to step back To reconnect with what is important in medicine, what is sacred in medicine, Mm -hmm. um, and to renew yourself, convinced that there's a better path going forward.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. Hmm. I am linking the book in the description, so please make sure to get a copy, whether you're a physician or not a physician. It's just an amazing story. So, my last question to you, Mark, is what are you up to now?
1: Yeah. So, well, I took time to write the book, which <laughs> was which was a terrific. It's actually interesting. I, this is my first book, and I, I never expected that I would write a book. What I ended up doing, I, I've, i for the past couple of years, I've been traveling a lot on business and uh, spent a lot of time in the air. And what I discovered was that there was something about being in an airplane that really forced me to write honestly.
0: Mm.
1: That there uh, and I don't know why. I don't know what it is. Maybe the air's thin. <laughs> your
0: or it just oxygen. gives you perspective because you're it, so it does.
1: maybe you are. There's just I don't know. Uh but there was something something about it that that really forced me to write um like meaningful, honest writing. Which which is hard. I think one of the things they don't tell you when you're when you're first starting out is that it's very easy to write dishonest material Mm. that shields you emotionally. It's much harder to write honest stuff that makes you vulnerable to the world. That's why I think, you know, criticism of a book really hurts because you've thrown yourself out there and you've got this, you know, you've got this, this book that matters so much to you. But, but I realized that, that it would take some time to sit down and, and really crank this thing out. So I did take six months uh, to sit down and really work hard on the book with a terrific editor, uh, Katie Hall, uh, who worked with me on getting this thing put together. And finally, it was done, and and we're unrolling it. And that's that's been so that's been such a rich experience. Hard work, but a rich experience. I've made the decision next to go and train in hospice and palliative care medicine. I'm starting in a few months' time a formal training program, and will come out. I'm going back; will be a student, just a, a you know a, a neophyte. I love that. Somebody brand new, uh, learning a brand new, brand new specialty, uh, under the tutelage of some terrific doctors. But will come out as a practicing hospice and palliative care doctor, and I really, for the rest of my career, of whatever's left, will be spent at the bedside with with palliative care patients.
0: Wow, that's amazing! It really, truly says something about you to like go back to being a student. You know, just another lesson that you can really do whatever. You know, go back to, go back to school. At, Whenever you want, change your careers, change your path, you know, um, and I appreciate that.
1: I love this idea of reinvention, mm-hmm. right? I think, th- I think sometimes, and this may be, maybe this resonates with you, you know, having made a made career pivot as well, right? Mm-hmm. I, th- I think sometimes we find ourselves um, in a job that isn't necessarily the right job for us, doing things that aren't necessarily the right thing. I think what you find sometimes is that they're tangential to what you should be doing like you're you're close but you're not quite right. Mm-hmm. But there's very little excuse for not stepping back and pivoting when it's time to pivot. For everything there's a season, right? And for me there was a season for emergency medicine and for hospital medicine. And then that season was over and it was time to pivot into something else which for me was administration for for 10 or 12 years that I've been doing it which I've loved. But for now for now it's Again, another season. The pivot needs to happen, and it's back to the bedside in a different specialty. And I'm excited.
0: I'm excited for you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for joining me in this conversation. I learned so much, and I'm so happy to meet you.
1: Yeah, Hedl, thank you so much again for having me and for the invitation, and the conversations are just so much fun. So thank you.
0: Amazing. For everybody who's listening, I'll say one more time, all of the links are in the description. You can find his book, connect with Mark on LinkedIn, and get to know him, read his book. It's amazing. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic and guest, head over to the show notes linked in the description of this episode. There, you can get access to resources, links, and ways you can get involved in the pursuit for global health. And if you loved this episode, don't forget to write me a review on Apple Podcasts and rate the podcast on Spotify. It helps me get in front of more people just like you and continues to elevate the causes we are so passionate about. I'll see you in the next one.